This is Mia Farrelletto. Welcome to the New Observations podcast. Um, at long last, we are here today with part two of our interview with Edward Conroy, the author of Report on Communion, and also um, his own um, spiritual journey. Um, Ed, welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thank you, Mia. I really appreciate the opportunity, and hello to everyone. Thank you for your time for tuning in to listen. Oh, it's it's great to have you with us again. Um, I know the audience is very much looking forward to hearing part two. Um, before we uh, we discuss your personal experience and journey, which is absolutely fascinating. I wanted to ask um, if there's anything else you want to share with us about uh, your experience writing communion, your experience with Whitley um, events at his cabin, anything you, you that came to your mind after part one that you you wanted to um, bring up here yes. today. Yes. Well, thank you for asking me about that, Mia. I think the principal thing I'd like to say is that from the very beginning of working closely with Whitley, we were in a kind of intersubjective consciousness where a lot of things would happen in the dream world uh, for me and for him, and then in the real world, which is kind of like a dream world, that were that were truly extraordinary and, and dreamlike. You know, the most extraordinary instance of that I described in the blog um, to my book where both Whitley and I saw and other people in my downtown apartment building saw two black helicopters that were flying so close to one another that their rotors appeared to be meshing. I mean, something oh, wow. that was absolutely impossible. And, um, in fact, you know, I had gone out onto the um, fire escape on the top floor of the building with my binoculars to take a look at it um, because it was so absolutely extraordinary. And one of my neighbors was there, too, and and she just, you know, she said, I I couldn't believe it. I wasn't seeing a crash. So how do you explain something like that, you know, because, you know, it was was one of these – phenomena that um, we were experiencing that um, was apparently physical, but was, you know, definitely meta or trans-physical. And, um, you know, at the time, Whitley and I sort of interpreted it as um, a symbolic of the way we were meshing our energies together to try to... um, you know, go more deeply into this story. And, um, and I, 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 I've said it before and I'll say it again that, you know, um, one of the things that really helped me so much in initiating the work was the fact that Whitley was willing to come forward with information that he hadn't shared with anybody else that he hadn't shared with his friends and family from his childhood. And he wanted me to check it out before he, talk to them so that 
you know, it wouldn't be, so the information would be fresh, you know, and, and then of course he, he would engage with people and, you know, find out more sometimes. So, um, and during the middle of the night, um, particularly during the witching hour of between three and 4 AM, um, uh, particularly often at three thirty three AM, I had sort of downloads of, um, you know, information that came to me in sort of like uh, light packets. Um, and um, these these experiences, some of which I described, you know, in the epilogue to my book, um, were um, really catalytic to my thinking. I began to feel that these beings, whoever they were, had a technology of, of light and of the imagination. And I began to, although I had, you know, I studied art at California Institute of the Arts all my life, you know, I had, you know, I had a mother, you know, a father who believed in giving me and my sister art classes. So I, you know, painted and drew quite a bit when I was a kid, you know, I was went to museums, so I was, you know, familiar with lots of different styles of art and movements of art, you know, I mean, was, I mean, I lived and breathed art, I studied cinema, I had worked for a while as a animation uh, technician, um, you know, uh, in L.A., uh, you know, I had, I, I, I had this idea of the imagination, but I always just, in the back of my mind, just thought of it as, like, just the imagination. And these experiences uh, made me see the imagination um, as a human faculty that was intimately connected with light um, both within us and without us, and that the imagination was, you know, something that um, higher beings had an ability to um, to utilize for the purpose of, of, you know, loading into people ideas and and suggestions that came in imaginal form that you might not even, you know, recognize at first. And of course, anyone who is an active dreamer knows that you may wake up in the morning with a dream that is just like absolutely bizarre and makes absolutely no sense. But if you stick with it and don't just like, you know, forget about it, um, that dream that makes no sense may eventually um, stimulate an aha moment where you realize something about yourself or your life that you might not have realized in any other way. So, um, so one of the things that um, happened to me in the course of um, the months after uh, I had written the book um, was that uh, a certain book that I had in my collection um, uh, on the tarot by Paul Foster Case, um, uh, Tarot Wisdom of the Ages, uh, kept kind of calling to me, and I so I and I had it, and I I'd read it you know, sort of read it years before, and suddenly I, I opened it up and I was looking at the 22 uh, keys, as he calls them, the, the, the particular cards that form the major arcana, um, and suddenly it hit me that the tarot was this um, system for educating the human imagination, and then also, as Case was presenting it, as windows, um, imaginal windows into um, realms of consciousness that 
are associated with the um, glyph known as the Tree of Life in the Kabbalah, which um, is also something that I had read about years before, but that I had never really quite um, looked at as dynamically as it was now um, making sense to me to to see it. And so um, I was getting, because I had gotten this idea from all these experiences that I needed to regard the imagination as something that was as real as an arm or a leg, you know, and let's, let's, let's face it, you know, an arm or a leg is a very temporary thing, you know, I mean, an arm and a leg exists for the um, duration of a human lifetime, and we think of it as very solid, but in actuality, you know, once our spirits leave our bodies, you know, the body falls apart, and, you know, so why not think of the imagination as, um, you know, something as real, you know, quote unquote unreal as, 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 as a physical thing and, um, and begin to make use of it. So with this new, um, insight, um, I signed up for the lessons that Paul Foster case, um, presents, uh, he's now passed away, but you know, that is the organization that he founded, the builders of the aditum, um, presents uh, through uh, old-fashioned, you know, uh, enlightenment by mail system where you would you would sign up and you'd get these, you know, little brochures, uh, four of them for each month, one for each week, where you would have lessons in, um, uh, you know, the utilization of of the one power, as as um, uh, as, as Case put it, and. This is related to the Golden Dawn in that case was, like numerous other people, um, expelled from the Golden Dawn uh, by Moina Mathers and um, went on to found uh, the builders of the Aditum out in L.A. He was an East Coast guy um, from Boston, um, a very uh, talented musician, composer, conductor, and um kind of mythic uh, lore about him states that uh, he, you know, hinted at this, that he met this gentleman who calls himself, they call, the Master R, whom uh, he, uh, in between the lines, let people know is the same personage who at one time um, had been known as uh, the Le Comte de Saint-Germain, Count of Saint-Germain, um, and um, became known as the Master R because apparently in uh, later in you know um, reinvention of himself he became um, a Russian general under the name of Rakotsi. But at any rate, um, you know. So he, Go ahead. Was Francis, was Francis Bacon um, reported to be another incarnation of Tangerine? Gosh, I'm sorry. We have such a bad connection. Um, you were asking oh. is Francis Bacon connected with this? Um, it's my Francis Bacon is considered to be another reason. Oh, oh, I see. Yes. Well, um, you know, I I'm not an expert on on this gentleman. Um, I've read um, Isabel Cooper Oakley's, um, you know. Uh, appreciation sort of biography of him 
Um, you know, I'm not sure if Francis Bacon and the, the Count of Saint Germain were one of the same entity, but you know, they they both have been attributed to um, you know having a secret role with the American Revolution and um, Natalie Palmer Hall, you know, that sort of thing. So um, I'm not sure, you know, but um, all I can say is that um, you know, the case, you know had these bona fides such as they are and but he really didn't need that because in my opinion case was the most articulate expositor of um the ageless wisdom behind the tarot and the kabbalah and astrology and um certain forms of alchemy uh in american english you know to ever get published uh, because and I and I had read a fair amount you know of other writers you know like Arthur Edward Waite who's famous for his own tarot deck who was a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn who wrote this you know these big huge tomes on the Kabbalah but you know they were just full of obfuscation and um, you know pomposity <laughs> you know and then right. there were French writers, uh, you know, like uh, Papus and, uh, you know, um, you know, and others um, who also had deliberate blinds that they put into uh, their system. And what was interesting about Case is that he would say, oh, well, the French had this blind, you know, here, you know, as to like the order of the um, 22 cards. And, you know, and he would like expose that. And he was, he was also the first guy who, uh, as far as I know, um, publicly um, attributed the 22 uh, cards in the Arcana, the keys, with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and uh, the 22 paths on the Tree of Life, which are distinct from the 10 Sephiroth. So there are actually 32 paths on the Tree of Life, and he created a, a diagram that shows, you know, where the, um, you know, the, the, the paths, you know, go from um, from Sephiroth to Sephiroth, the, the Metzla. And, um, and this is significant because um, in the practices of the Golden Dawn, which were later carried on into the... Um, the, the builders of the Adagium and and other other authors have written you know on this such as Dion Fortune who I'll go into a little bit and and Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki um, there's this process known as rising on the plains whereby you create imaginary journeys um, in your mind um, from the realm of you know into the realm of a key or from one, um, you know, place on the tree to another, uh, using the tarot imagery as sort of your um, springboard. And um, and I must say, Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki's um, writings are are just incredibly beautiful. Um, her guided meditations. So so anyhow, I began taking these um, uh, these lessons, and um, the the lessons begin with. Um, a series that's simply called Seven Steps. Um, and the Seven Steps begins with a simple question, which is, what do you want? And um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's a very practical question, and it's really different from, like, what I got when I was a young man uh, at Zen Center in San Francisco, um, where I used to uh, chant, um, desires are endless, I vow to put an end to them. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, right. And, you know, uh, yeah, okay. I mean, I can see at a certain point, I mean, you know, I was an alienated young man who was a Vietnam War protester and conscientious objector and, you know, Zen, uh, you know, I believe I had past lives in Japan. So Zen was, you know, like a natural sort of stopping place for me. But, um, I, I, got, I began to get attracted to the Kabbalah and the tarot way back when I was in San Francisco. So because time is a spiral, not a straight line, let me, um, before proceeding any further with this, I'd like to just spiral back um, to sort of the preparatory experiences that I had um, when that, I was a young man. That would be, that would be great. Um, and we are at the point of our first commercial break, so let's stop here and we'll be right back to continue. Welcome back to the show. Just as a point of reference, Ed, how old were you at this time? Okay, well, when I was doing uh, my research on, on Whitley, I was in my early 30s. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I was 34 when uh, I started. And... Um, but I had some experiences when I was very young, when I was 20, um, in the San Francisco Bay Area that um, profoundly influenced me and, and educated me in a very remarkable way about the tarot. And so in a, in a nutshell, it's, it's this. After my second year at CalArts um, in the School of Critical Studies, I got shortly after my 19th birthday, because I started when I was 17, um, I got um, a letter from the U.S. Selective Service System, and lo and behold, I was drafted. <laughs> I was oh, wow. Lottery, yeah, I was 1A. And um, I had gotten to the point where um, I was very opposed to the Vietnam War, and I had long ago made a commitment that there was no way I was going to serve in Vietnam because I, I felt like, you know, we were committing war crimes every day. And, you know, I, I just wasn't going to do it, you know. And I had already been thinking about, like, you know, going to Ireland maybe, you know. And so, because um, I, I have ancestors on both sides in Ireland, and I thought I could maybe get grandfather clause into being an Irishman. But, you know, I really didn't want to have to do that. So I investigated becoming a CEO, and lo and behold, about that same time, a young guy from Yale, whom I've subsequently gotten to know, um, wrote an application to the um, for CEO status on ethical grounds, because part of that you had to be Amish or Quaker or Mennonite, because of tradition. And um, so the Supreme Court uh, ruled that, yeah, anybody um, could, you know, who had an ethical argument could apply. So that's what I did, and, and um, I, I'm, I moved to San Francisco because I was beginning to hate L.A. I didn't like living there anymore, and I had a friend who'd moved to um, 1911 and a half to Visadero Street where we were sanding the floors of this old, um, you know, flat for free rent, and um, there I wrote my conscientious objector application, but at a certain point I got stuck 
So I had taken up a workshop with Robert Bly, the poet, and he had talked about um, Native American, um, you know, vision quests. So I decided, well, I'm going to do a vision quest. <laughs> so I looked for the closest mountain, and I drove my truck across the bridge to um, the um, Point Reyes National Seashore, where I climbed Mount Wittenberg, and um, you know, m- moderately fasting, eating just like some carrots and granola and put my sleeping bag down on the ground and I asked for a vision. I went to sleep and I woke up, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm two o'clock in the morning because there was this incredible explosion of thunder and lightning immediately above me. There was this thunderbolt that stretched from horizon to horizon that looked like a spinal cord with millions of nerve endings going across it and like a cannon blast, and I was being drenched in, like, you know, tons of rain that had come in from the coast, which was only, you know, like a mile away. (laughs) And I was like, you know, and then it happened again, you know, and then another boom. And I was beginning to, I was totally soaked and shivering. And I thought, holy, you know what, I'm going to die. (laughs) In that (laughs) moment, I was out of my body, and I was in this blue body of light, and I could see a, um, a silver cord going all the way from my belly button into, like, over there, there's my body. I was looking at my body. And, uh, you know, in the nice new <laughs> goose damn sleeping bag that was now ruined. And, um, you know, and I was, but my consciousness had completely changed. Instead of being terrified, I was looking at the, lightning bolts which were continuing and the rain and the clouds rushing by and I thought how magnificent look at the power of nature this is incredible and I felt just this ecstasy of being alive in this state and and knowing that I was more than my physical body and in that moment I looked up and I saw a star that somehow or another seemed to me like it was my home i felt this pain in my heart that you know ached to go back there and yet i realized that um suddenly you know well i had asked for a vision now i'm having a vision <laughs> <laughs> and if if i go back to that star uh i'm gonna forget about this body over here and i came here for a reason and i still need to really figure out you know what my mission is here so i decided no i'm not going to go back to that star and in that very moment my consciousness was back in my body boom and although the rain was still falling in copious quantities upon mine and i was you know still drenched to the bone um i was completely tranquil and um just in awe of the experience so somehow or another, the rain stopped, I went to sleep, I get up in the morning, I drag my sleeping bag down the hill. I had a camper, uh, I changed clothes, and I found out there was a, you know, a, a place called Inverness just up the way uh, where I could get a hot breakfast. So I'm on this little country road, and I see this very uh, tall, blonde, very handsome, buff, young guy, I don't know, maybe about 30, older than me, and still quite young, hitchhiking in the middle of nowhere. 
And it's about, I don't know, 7.30 on a Sunday morning. And I thought, damn, you know, I had to get that guy right. So even though I was so young, I didn't feel comfortable usually giving guys a ride, you know, I did. And so we made chit-chat. He told me about his log cabin in Alaska where he was going and breaking up with his girlfriend in L.A. and stuff like that. And, and then he asked me, just out of the blue, he said, have you ever had a tarot reading? And I said, no, I don't know anything about the tarot. And he said, well, uh, just around the bend, there's a little rest area with a picnic table. If you'd like a tarot reading, I'd be happy to give one to you. And you can stop in there. And so I said, well, okay, why not? So um, uh, he took out from his backpack this very well-worn um, weight deck. And um, after asking me to choose, I asked me my sign, I'm a Gemini heir. So, um, you know, he he, found, he he picked as a significator um, the um, Knight of Wands and, um, no, Swords, yeah, Swords is air. And um, we, um, you know, and, and then he proceeded to, you know, lay down the cards that he had shuffled. And the first card that crossed the significator was 16, the tower. And the tower shows lightning bolts hitting a tower and a bunch of people falling out of it. And oh, that's funny. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. And um, so there were other cards. And the long and short of it was, he said, you just had an experience that's equivalent to being struck by lightning. And, you know, everything in your world, you know, has been t- turned upside down. You know, nothing is the same. You see everything differently now. And um, this is a sign that, you know, it's time for you to, you know, grab hold of the rudder of your life. And, you know, your parents, you know, have have given you, you know, a great formation, but you've really got to go on your own path from here on out. And um, and I, I was just astonished. You know, I didn't know what to say except thank you. And we got back in the truck, and we were driving along for a while, and I, my manners, you know, came to me, and I said, well, can I offer you breakfast, you know? And he said, you know, um, no, I, 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 you know, that's very nice of you, but, but this is where I get out. And I said, we're in the middle of nowhere. And he said, no, this is where I get out. So I, I let this very tall, blonde uh, guy out of my uh, truck, and we waved goodbye to one another. And I hoped I would see him again sometime, but um, I never did. So um, it's amazing, an amazing story, and I'm finally at a point in my life. Well, he came into your life to do your card, read your cards for you. Yeah, I mean, he was there on a mission, you know, and um, he knew I was going to be there. Apparently, somebody told him, you know. I don't know where he beamed down from or where he beamed back up to, but um, <laughs> you know, pretty pretty remarkable and so i felt you know very uh fortunate but that got me interested in the tarot and so i'll fast forward a little bit so i i moved you know into uh, into different neighborhoods of the city i was in the zen center community for a while i got a job as a dishwasher even though i i got my co i didn't have to do it because it ended the draft and my parents wanted me to come back to san antonio which i did not want to do so I, I I followed his advice, and I got the first job I could get. I got a job as a dishwasher. After a while, I was a cook. After a while, I was a manager, and I had a house in the avenues and a lease and, uh, you know, a girlfriend and a nice, fancy Italian bike, and I had, you know, I had a life, you know. But um, uh, in the course of this, I got to know some guys who ran a place 
called um, the Philosopher's Stone Bookstore, which is still really kind of a legendary place in San Francisco because it was run by um, this amazing couple of um, Francis Rath and Ivan St. John. Ivan wasn't, they're both deceased, may they rest in peace. Ivan was African-American, Francis was, was white, and um, they were the first gay couple I had ever gotten to know. But they were like a gay couple in that, like, Ivan was a trans medium, and Francis was this incredible businessman. They had the best occult bookstore on the West Coast. You know, with all due respect to people. Wow. They really did. And they had all these connections in France and England, so they had all these English books. And that's where I started to learn about the Order of the Golden Dawn, because they had, like, the complete works of Aleister Crowley, they had everything that, you know, uh, Dion Fortune had ever written. They had everything that, you know, Israel Regardi had ever written. And, you know, I, had, I, I used to go down there and, you know, spend all my free money on, you know, on buying these books. But more than, um, more than that, um, every Friday night, um, Ivan had, like, trance readings. And I'll never forget the first time I went there. He said he had this spirit guide named Tony. And... Uh, so, you know, Ivan gives me a reading and he says, I see, uh, cowboy boots. Are you from Texas? And I was like, yeah, and, uh, this is my very first psychic reading. Um, I'm like Tony and, and he says, I see canisters of 35 millimeter film. And I said, yeah, that makes sense. Cause I just had this job where I was, you know, doing animation and, and taking film back and forth from CalArts to Hollywood to get. Um, you know, developed overnight and hanging out with the um, hookers and heroin addicts at the coffee house until I got <laughs> the, uh, you know, the film and take it back. And um, so, um, yeah, I was, um, so I was blown away and, and, and Tony became like a real friend to me and, and um, encouraged me in my studies. And it was through them that I got to know of Frater Albertus um, Albert Riddell, uh, the Paracelsus um, Research Institute, later college in Salt Lake, where I became um, amazingly a student of laboratory alchemy, um, as did Israel Regardi, who had recommended it. So, um, and it was at that place where I actually took two two-week courses in the Kabbalah and astrology in, you know, relationship to um to laboratory alchemy, to the plant work, and later to mineral work. Um, you know, I'm still a neophyte, but um, at any rate, so I had all that background behind me when I started my work on Whitley, and I didn't tell people about that at the time because um, living in San Antonio, Texas, um, I had just determined, I mean, where I had tried to talk to people about, I'd also gotten into homeopathic medicine. I tried to talk to people about this stuff and they thought I was talking like, you know, I can't, I, I'll never forget. I gave a lecture, you know, at a bookstore on homeopathic medicine and, and, and somebody said, Oh, I, I thought you were going to talk about psychotherapy for homosexuals. <laughs> so, wow. That's funny. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, before we go any further, though, we have to take our second break, right. but we'll be right, right. back. Right. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. We've come a long way, haven't we? <laughs> <Yeah>. I guess. <laughs> no, we have. I mean, think uh, uh, what you're doing is so classic. I mean, anyone who's been on 
a spiritual journey and gets to the point where they decide it's time to start sharing this information with others, particularly like, you know, 30 or more years ago, um, you were looked at as being crazy. Oh, yeah. And so I put all this stuff, you know, into the closet, you know, and just concentrated on my further education. Uh, I took this big sort of deep, well, I I shifted gears and I started studying everything I could about Mexico. Uh, I studied Spanish language. I studied Mexican art, history, politics. Um, I fell in love with my Spanish teacher at the University of Mexico. Uh, You know, we married my first wife, Lucila traveled all over the Mexico all the time, and I became kind of a, uh, um, a specialist for the San Antonio Express News, where I began writing about art and culture um, on Mexican art. And, and if there was any Mexican artist who came to town of any significance, I was the guy to interview them. And I really enjoyed doing that. I learned so much. And, um, you know, because I became, began to understand something about myself, which is that I am a bridge person. So I felt like being here in San Antonio, where we're on the close to the border, where there was still so much incredible misunderstanding and, and you know uh, prejudice about Mexico and Mexicans and Mexican Americans, you know, who were beginning to call themselves Chicanos, you know, or Hispanics, and that was way before Latino came out. Um, you know, I, I began to um, relate, you know, as a bridge person, and so. You know, at a certain point in my career, that's when Whitley Strieber came into my life, you know, through, you know, getting a copy of the book. And I realized, you know, I wanted to try to do something, you know, to bridge um, this because still way back in the, you know, bridge public understanding of what Whitley is doing to really relate to, to Whitley in, in many ways. Because like me, he was a bright guy at a Catholic high school who didn't fit in, who asked too many questions and got into trouble for it, um, and we're both lucky that we, you know, graduated without being expelled because we were both questioning everything. So I, I liked that about him a lot, and, um, you know, it, I felt like, you know, like my background qualified me to do this in, in a way, and I was remembering that experience where I was out of my body and, you know, the star and all that. So, um, yeah, so I, I did the best job that I could. Um, you know, trying to keep all this sort of stuff under my hat. But then so much stuff happened uh, that I decided to write about it in the book. Um, and that sort of resulted in, like, you know, when I went on my to the media tour, all these people asking me about my experiences rather than, like, my work investigating Whitley because people want far-out stories. But I'm not here to, to give you a far-out story. You know, basically I have one very simple message for people, which is that if you really want to know something and you put your full intention into finding an answer, you will find it. And these, all these arts, tarot, astrology, Kabbalah, um, you know, alchemy, ceremonial magic, which came out of the Golden Dawn, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, they're all just ways of helping you to awaken to being your own full magical self and, and exercising all of the incredible talents that you were born with, but that, you know, the world tries to condition us to forget about. So um, that's, so, so after I finished my research into Whitley, you know, and I, I had become a family man um, in this, my second family, 
Um, and the daughter, my, my, I married the late Dora Ruffner, my ex-wife, late ex-wife Dora Ruffner, um, who took a big, you know, jump and moved from idyllic Boulder, Colorado to this barbarian land of Texas, you know, and, and we had Bridget um, and, and my stepdaughter Amy together, and we had this new family. I found that doing the exercises in the um, work of the Builders of the Adidome, which involved um, coloring in cartoons of the 22 um, major arcana and internalizing them within myself, um, and then meditating upon single cards uh, in relationship with the Tree of Life, really sharpened my intuition and helped me to get answers to practical questions of, you know, things that I needed to do. And, and, and my intuition connected me with a Spanish magazine, Masiago La Ciencia from Barcelona, which paid me $3,000 an article. I began, I did an interview with Whitley. I did an article on crop circles. I did an interview with Uri Geller, you know, so like things came to me through my intuition, um, you know, in ways that, that they hadn't because I was doing this practice. And um, so uh, I'm, you know, so I've, I've been continuing, uh, my God, I mean, Case and then Ann Foster Davies, who also worked with him, I wrote so much, you know, I mean, uh, I haven't been, you know, as assiduous in the lessons in the last few years, but because I'm writing a novel in my spare time, which is taking forever, but um, you know, I'll be getting back to them, but I mean, there's this incredible volume of information that's, that's there. And, you know, I highly recommend it to anybody who is looking for, you know, a practical approach to wisdom, which is what the golden dawn tried to do, but unfortunately it's splintered. So, um, so I'll say just a few things about that because it's, but because I feel it's really important to, honor the people who were involved in that and um, the men and women who were absolutely extraordinary. I first learned of a member of the Golden Dawn by picking up a copy of a paperback edition of A Vision by William Butler Yeats. And A Vision is this extraordinary channeled work that his wife and he, his wife was the principal medium, put together um, that was this unique extraordinary astrological system based on the phases of the moon and he embellished it with this whole mythology he created about certain people who were like the transmitters of this tradition and in a vision he, he explicates that and i was just like totally fascinated about it i i made i did a presentation to my religion class about it i, I can't believe that you know they let me do that and um, wow you know, because it was, yeah, it was about spirit communication right well i had a particularly liberal religion teacher who later got kicked out of being a religion teacher. But at any rate, um, so I was, um, so yeah, so I read all about, you know, I was fascinated by Yates. You know, I used to like find somebody, some author, and I'd devour everything that I could about them. And, but then later, you know, like I mentioned when I was in the Philosopher's Stone, I, I saw this actual Golden Dawn literature and I picked up, you know, the, um, the, the massive uh, Llewellyn edition of, the uh, repub of the publication of all of the secret um, manuscripts of the order that Israel Regardi had put out, which 
Alistair Crowley had originally put out, but in a, in in what Rigardi regarded as a very um, kind of scattered and not that not well edited form. So, Rigardi, who had been um, Crowley's personal secretary, um, reorganized it and 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 violated all of his oaths, you know, for secrecy um, by putting it out to the public. And um, that edition, which came out in the early seventies, like had a massive effect. Um, I think practically anybody who was involved in any kind of, you know, new age or, you know, Wiccan or any kind of alternative spiritual, th- you know, movement during the 1970s and 80s was in one way or another affected by, by, by the golden dawn. And then the other person whom I particularly want to, you know, honor is, um, Dion for- fortune. That was a pen name of, uh, Violet S first F I R T H who um, started out uh, writing uh, about these matters by writing a book called um, Psychic Self-Defense. That was her, as I understand it, her first book, um, which she wrote after she had gotten into psychotherapy with a member of the order who was a very highly advanced member of the order who was a a leading psychotherapist in England at the time. And... um, she went to work for him um, in this country asylum that that um, she had, that he had, and in this book, Psychic Self Defense, she describes how she was abused by the headmistress of a school in which she was working, um, and and had you know just suffered this incredibly relentless, nonstop, you know, psychological you know abuse, which was being enhanced by ritual work that the woman was doing behind her back, and how she got out of it. And she was a terribly talented writer. She went on to write this wonderful book called The Secrets of Dr. Tavener, which was based on actual cases of people whom he treated um, at his asylum. He took on patients, all of whom were extremely psychic. So, so it's kind of like this, you know, it's, it's real. I mean, I mean, one of them was, you know, a, a fairy in a human body, you know, a, you know, a member of the Shida. So, um, you know, the, and then she went on to write a bunch of uh, fiction that dealt with, um, you know, what was going on in the occult scene in her day. And um, she's most famous for the Sea Priestess, which in its central character is a woman named Morgan Le Fay, who is um, dedicated to, um, get this, helping men who are too weak to uh, find their true selves. And um, she's like, you know, one of these masters who's living for hundreds of years. And <clears throat> she finds these guys with whom she's had past life connections who are all messed up and and helps them to, you know, liberate themselves from the problems of their lives and, and become strong, strong again, which is not a theme that you, <laughs> you see these days, you know, um, in a lot of literature. So um, uh, because apparently she was kind of impressed by you know, she felt like a lot of English men had become uh, really, you know, weak. <laughs> so at any rate, um, but she also, um, but she's, but, and she, she broke off from the Golden Dawn and formed her own association called the Servants of the Light, which is still around. Um, and so I highly recommend, you know, uh, you know, all, she wrote a, her classic text, The Mystical Kabbalah, was also like the first book about the Kabbalah in plain English 
that anybody could read because she wasn't trying to impress anybody with her erudition. And, um, and it was great. So, um, and then I have to say that um, there were a number of women who were all in the um, uh, Irish involved in the Irish Revolution from Lauren Golden Golden Dawn and um, Mary Kay Greer has um, written a great book about these uh, women, which um, you know I highly um, recommend. I mean, this is, it was like her one of her life works. You know, I mean, she took decades to write this. It's about Annie Horniman and Florence Farr and Maude Gaughan, um, all of whom had, like, you know, friendships with um, Bernard Shaw and and, um, uh, and, and and Yates, and they were all involved in, um, you know, creating both the Irish Cultural Revolution through the Abbey Theater and through, because some of them were, were dramatists, uh, Florence Farr was a major actress of her time, appeared in Shaw's mm-hmm. plays, um, and they were all involved in ritual work um, with the Golden Dawn. And um, so uh, uh, Rebels and Priestesses, I believe, is the title of that book. And, and it's it's amazing. I mean, I, I adore, you know, Mary Kicker for writing that. Um, because it's like, you know, most of the history of the Irish Revolution is about, you know, the guys, obviously. So, um, so... Uh, and of course, then we have to mention the bad boy of uh, the Golden Dawn, who Alistair Crowley, who um, you know uh, I mentioned, by the way, in my book. You know, I had a whole chapter about him and his uh, contacting of this uh, being uh, who he thought was named Lamb, <clears throat> whom he drew and looks like a gray, um, and you know that that was pretty interesting to me. So. Yeah, I wrote this chapter about his um, invocation of the demon Koranzon, which, you know, led to his, um, you know, discovery of Lamb, you know. And um, uh, so Crowley, what can I say about him? Like, you know, uh, I, I, I try to say something nice about everybody. Um, you know, Crowley is, you know, either like adored or reviled. Uh, by people in the metaphysical world, and um, the truth lies somewhere in between. The fact of the matter is, is that you have to understand that Aleister Crowley grew up in an extremely fundamentalist um, family, Darbyites. You know, these are the people who believe that the end of the world is coming, and um, you know, and, and they're extremely strict. And he completely rebelled against that, and just was like the most incredible student um, <clears throat> in the early Golden Dawn. He he had a phenomenal memory. He memorized all of the attributions of everything. You know, he, he, he was like, he rose through the grades, so they say, you know, because it's this graded system of initiation. And he was quickly operating at a rather high level. He was writing a number of books um, that were, you know, you know, selling well. And, um, and then, you know, he got associated with sex scandals. And, um, you know, was and, and went off to found his own, um, you know, order, the order of the Templar, uh, order of Templar Orientis, OTO, and created the whole, um, you know, uh, Thelema movement. Um, and, um, you know, I, all I can say is that, you know, if you want to look at a tradition, you have to look at the entire spectrum of everybody, you know, who's about it. But I will say this, um, the problem, you know, with obtaining psychic power, um, if you have not done psychotherapy, as Israel Regardi always pointed out, is that 
Um, once you have these powers, if you have not integrated your shadow into your personality, as Carl Jung would say, you have not done the shadow work. If you have not understand, if you don't understand how your traumas <coughs> have led you to enlightenment, and if you do not have a uh, commitment to the enlightenment of the whole world, um, you know, and, and, and being of service, then you get inflated, you know. And, you know, you might think that you're the most powerful psychic that's ever been on the planet, you know, and that, you know, everything, you know, has to follow your orders, you know. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And, boy, watch me make it happen. Well, yes. And so, yeah, we all need to learn to, to manifest, but, you know, maybe with some ethics, maybe with some, you know, self-love and love for others. You know? And so, unfortunately, um, you know, just like in Dungeons and Dragons and, other popular uh, media, you know, warring wizards, you know, um, went after one another and, you know, excluded some of the most, you know, talented and, and amazing people uh, from their number to the point where they went off and did their own thing, <clears throat> like Dion Fortune or, or like Paul Foster Case. So I'm not a member of any particular Golden Dawn order. I do respect all the people who are still um, carrying on the tradition. Um, to my knowledge, there is more than one organization that claims to be the true and, you know, um, uh, correct uh, Golden Dawn, and I don't get into any of that politics. Um, I'm, I'm happy that I found my own little Protestant revolution in, um, you know, in the BOTA, and, and there's even an offshoot from that one. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but... Um, you know, I'll just sort of conclude by saying that um, I find inspiration um, in this um, in this in this tradition. I have incredible respect for the people who who you know risk their their, their lives and their reputations. You know, by going into these you know secret societies. You know, there's all this. You know, um, there was a. You know, I mean, there was the Catholic Church, you know, which used to, you know, burn people at the stake, you know, for being involved in these things and um, was still, you know, especially in Ireland, um, very repressive in many ways. And um, so they really took a, you know, um, a lot of risks and um, I admire them. And um, and think of, the, you know, think of Paul Foster Case. He went out to L.A. with like, very little, and somehow or another, he manifested this really significant piece of real estate where they they built their temple, and he just dedicated himself to doing this, and and you know the, you know he built it, and they came, you know. So um, that then that is the whole mission I feel of you know this Western tradition. It's about helping people to manifest their desires, and then to become educated about ourselves as we see our desires manifested we realize that oh well that was imperfect you know i need to improve this or that about myself you know that wasn't what i really wanted so it's a constant process of evolving and with all due respect to buddhism i'm not quite ready to like go back into that you know room where people chant you know desires are are numberless i vow to put an end to them Yes, at some point, I guess, when I'm, you know, when I'm done with my work of, of building here, but I have a lot to build, and um, 
So um, I'm very grateful for all the things that came to me out of writing report on communion <laughs> and all of the whoever they were that came to me at 3.33 in the morning and whoever that tall blonde guy was that I met on the road to Inverness and to you, Mia. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you, Ed. I, I really am um, to you and um, to hear you share your stories. I think that we're in a whole new place right now um, in terms of what's happening energetically in the world, and we're we're in of instant manifestation um, for those who've cleared away the debris enough. I mean, I. I think you'll probably agree. It's letting go. That that's the piece that therapy provides. Yes. That we can no longer carry. They're not ours to carry anyway. But um, we can't pick up new things until we let go of the things that no longer have significance in our lives. But we're really at this place where our intentions and our words, even without ritual, are enough to bring our goals and desires into existence. And I think we're all seeing the world divide right now. Uh, I certainly see that we're live. There are two very distinct um, realities that are, are happening that are very much formed depending on what you are bringing into your life. You know, what your commitment is to your own, self-growth and development, and as you mentioned so beautifully, um, the goal for the world, because our what's good for me is good for everybody, and that has to be, um, that has to be the ultimate goal, because we all have to raise each other up. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and... Um... We're all, yes, as you say, we're all in this together, and somehow or another, uh, things have, like the spiral has wound itself very tightly, and the cycles are much shorter, and so we are um, finding ourselves uh, having to be really responsible for what we say and do and want, um, and and try to... Um, you know, manifest responsibly, you know, and with love, you know, for ourselves right. and for others, you know. And for a lot of us, loving ourselves is, is not that easy, you know. Um, so it's about healing ourselves. And then, you know, in recent years, I've learned a lot about, you know, shamanic healing of ancestors and soul retrieval and all that kind of thing. And my novel is a, is a magical work of soul retrieval. Um, so... Um, I've been very inspired by these, you know, magical writers. Um, you know, I, I have to also to say, like, you know, since we're talking about amazing women, uh, Joan Grant's novels about reincarnation, you know, people in this generation don't know about Joan Grant. Oh, my God, you know, look her up and read her books. You know, they're all re- recollections of her past life. And, yes, she was a pharaoh. <laughs> <laughs> That's why people, you see her book, uh, her book on, on her life as a pharaoh was such a bestseller that that's why people like Bennett Cerf on what's my line back in the 50s where say, 
oh, you know, everybody has a reincarnation as a pharaoh, you know, but um, it's, 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 you know, it's a pretty amazing book. So it's called Wings. In her case, it was true. <laughs> it was true, yeah. She followed that up. Yeah. So Moses was born, the story of Moses, you know, so from her past life experience. So anyhow, uh, yeah, you know, there are all these sources that have come into our world of information that's enlightening. And, and more now than ever before, I've been learning about the gene keys and human design, you know, which expand on the I Ching and astrology. I didn't even go into that. I, you know, I was an I Ching devotee for a long time. And, you know, so, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, it's all here for us. Um, so, yeah, I do hope people will um, check out these traditions and, um, you know, and study, you know, and learn to internalize um, images and doing the memory work um, is very important. Memory, the cultivation of memory is an old occult um, faculty. We tend not to uh, think of it as very important, but I do memory exercises every day as a part of my work that I learned from this tradition, and I highly recommend that to people too. But it is now 2.42 in my uh, little time zone here where I'm at, and I need to, to move I know on. you need to jump. Thank you yeah. so much, Ed, and thank you so yeah. much for this amazing um, reading list that you've provided as well. I'm certainly oh, well. Um, going to get started with it. All right. Well, I'm, thank you so much for your interest, and, and my thanks to everyone who's been listening and I'm happy to, you know, correspond with anybody who would like to write to me. And, um, you know, Mimia will publish my email. So thank you all. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye, Ed. Bye-bye. Adios. Bye-bye.